Most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you. Lord, I recognize that this particular topic of today is going to be overkill. <laughs> I get it. It's, it's a lot and it's going to be intense. And so I'm asking, Father God, that it be you speaking here and not I. But I also ask that you be with the rest of my wonderful family here in Tallahassee, that you pour out your spirit upon them so that we can be receptive to your word. Prepare our hearts and our minds now. We continue to invite your presence into this place. And we continue to ask for the anointing of your spirit. We ask these things in your most holy and precious name. Let everyone here say, Amen. Okay, so today's topic, you know, I have to tell you, it's, um, it's a topic that is very dear to me. And understand this, we have gone through a journey where over the last, uh, sometime in February, we, we had like an intense week, like a weekend, a couple of days during the week and a weekend with this concept of Seventh-day Adventist Christian, do you know who you are? Or if you're a Christian altogether, if you really believe in Christ, do you know what your role is while you occupy on this earth until Christ comes again? This topic is sort of to wrap all of that up to make sure that we are on the same page. Understand this. The idea is that you here are all ministers. That is not to take away from me and my job, but it is to ensure that you know which job is yours as well. So understand, it's not to be less of me, but it is to have more of you. And so here you have something that Martin Luther once said, you know, a while back. He said the following, Christ does not have two bodies or two different kinds of body, one temporal and one spiritual. Whoever has undergone baptism may boast that he is already a priest. Now, he didn't just get this out of himself and on his own. This is something that we find in the scriptures. First Peter 2.9, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who call you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Has anybody here been called out of darkness? So then you have a story to tell. And that's what you have been called to. You are a royal priesthood. That's in the new. Let's look at the old. Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasure possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. And so what I've done, I, I've gathered some history on us because somewhere along the way, we've deviated from our missional model. We stopped being a movement and we've become just an institution. Something that I asked the leaders about a month or two ago, I don't know, sometime this year, I had asked the leaders, we met in the fellowship hall during the training, and, and I asked them if we were to get a group of atheists and brought them in here and tell them to do the same things that we do, how would they differ from us? Would they be any difference? I asked the leaders, our budget, is it based on stuff focusing inside, you know, paying our light bill and our water bill and all of these different things, or is this actual funds in there in reaching the community? Because if we're just a self-serving church, we might as well just close the church and call it a day. 
because we are self-serving and that is not what our job is. So, you know, how do we get here? Where have we been? And this is where we are. In the summer of 1854, Seventh-day Adventists first began to use large tents in which to hold meetings. It was a rare thing in those days to see tents used for such purpose. Consequently, crowds of people came to the tent meetings. This increased interest in the message called for ministers who could devote their whole time to gospel work. This they could not do without some means of support besides their own hands labor. This instruction is in harmony with the plan adopted in the early times of our organized conferences. In the public meetings, the requests for labor and the openings for the same were presented freely and fully after which each and all the ministers were requested to seek God to learn for themselves and uh, to learn for themselves where the Lord would have them labor. In a nutshell, everything that I'm sharing there is as follows. And I shouldn't have worked, walked in front of that projector. But uh, anyhow, I can't see all of you at the moment, but um, <laughs> in a nutshell, um, this is what happens. Originally, we were meeting in our houses. We were ministering to people. And then suddenly, you know what? Let's get a huge tent. Let's gather people together. And they were saying, you know... <sighs> I appreciate what all of you guys are doing, but you know, like Joe has a full-time job and Bill has a full-time job and you guys all have real jobs, but as we're ministering, the work is so much, we're going to need to have full-time ministers that can do this full-time. However, however, what they asked was from the very beginning when they realized we needed full-time, they're going to need some kind of support, but we're going to ask them to pray where the Lord will have them serve. And this is how it all had begun or started with us originally. All right. Now, here's how the church, the views were back in 1886. Some facts and figures gathered gather from Elder Start, how they have grown so much in 40 years and what it is that they believe. By what means have you carried out forward your work so rapidly? Well, in the first place, replied the elder, we have no settled pastors. Our churches are taught to care of themselves, while nearly all of our ministers work as evangelists in new fields. And so the idea was that, you know, we're not meant to be here over the churches. Now, don't get me wrong. You're going to get tired of me because of the Revelation series. I'm going to be here through April 15, and I'll be preaching on Sabbath and Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and a couple of Sunday nights. So you're, you're going to get me quite a bit. But that's not how it was intended to be. My job was to go out there and minister to people who have never heard it. My job wasn't just to come up with 20 different ways to tell you how Christ loves you every Sabbath, with different knowledges but telling you the exact same story, maybe with a different inflection or a different Bible verse. My job was to tell people who have never heard it for the first time. And so how was it that we grew so much in 40 years? Well, we didn't have set of pastors. They were out there working in new fields. And we taught the churches to look out for themselves. All Seventh-day Adventist clergymen are missionaries, not located pastors, and are busy preaching, teaching, and organizing churches the world over. Doesn't it seem like what Paul did? He went around, he planted, he taught, and then while he was somewhere else, hey, Timothy, I heard what's going on over there. Listen, get it together. We'll work it out. I yearn to be with you. I want to be with you. I won't be there for a little bit, but this is what's going on. And then that was it. Once in a while, he got a chance to visit, come back, redirect. But that's how the mission was, even in Bible times. We have not settled our ministers over churches as pastors to any large extent. 
In some of the very large churches, we have elected pastors, but as a rule, we have held ourselves ready for field service, evangelistic work, and our brethren and sisters have held themselves ready to maintain their church service and carry forward their church work without settled pastors. And I hope this will never cease to be the order of affairs in this denomination. For when we cease our forward movement, work, and begin to settle over our churches, to stay by them and do their thinking, and their praying, and their work that is to be done, then our churches will begin to weaken, and to lose their life and spirit, and become paralyzed and fossilized, and our work will be on retreat. 1912. So how was it that we abandoned this mission model? You know, first of all, it wasn't anything definite. Something around the 1950s, we, we began to transition between, you know, going out into the fields and just sort of start settling over the churches. So as pastors were placed over the churches, instead of raising up new churches, the job description quickly changes one of, to one of being the primary caregiver, and the Catholic model of the Middle Ages becomes the norm for Adventist pastors. Let the ministers devote more time, more of his time, to educating than to preaching. Let him teach the people how to give others the knowledge they have received. This is in uh, uh, Testimonies, Volume 7, page 20. It is not the Lord's purpose that ministers should be left to do the greatest part of the work of sowing the seeds of truth. Page 21. In laboring where there are already some in the faith, the minister should at first seek not so much to convert unbelievers as to train the church members for acceptable cooperation. Gospel Writers, page 196. God has not given his ministers the work of setting the churches right. No sooner is this work done, apparently, that it has to be done over again. Church members are, that are thus looked after and labor for become religious weaklings. If nine-tenths of the effort that has been put forth for those who know the truth have been put forth for those who never heard the truth, how much greater would have been the advancement made? Sometimes ministers do too much. They seek to embrace the whole work in their arms. It absorbs and dwarfs them, yet they continue to grasp it all. They seem to think that they alone are to work in the cause of God. While the members of the church stand idle, this is not God's order at all. The greatest help that can be given our people is to teach them to work for God and to depend on Him, not on the ministers. So long as the church members make no effort to give others the help given them, great spiritual feebleness must result. And so then here, you know, Ellen White tells the story of a foreman, how the job of a pastor is like that of a foreman. You know, he, he, he went out to look to see what was going on with his people, and, uh, you know, his job was to look at different things. And so what happens is that when the owner came, he found the foreman working on one of the machines and six other guys just sort of staying around. And so the owner, you know, he did some homework. He wanted to find out exactly what was happening to make sure that no injustice was done. And so this is what happens. He called the foreman to his office, and the owner gave him his discharge in full. And in surprise, the foreman asked for an explanation. It was given in these words. I employ you to keep six men at work and found the six idle, and you're doing the work of but one. Your work could have been done just as well by one, by any one of the six. I cannot afford to pay the wages of seven for you to teach the six how to be idle. Those who will be overcomers must be drawn out of themselves. 
And the only thing which will accomplish this great work is to become intensely interested in the salvation of others. When I was baptized and later became a young preacher, we looked upon churches that had to have settled pastors over every flock as being decadent. Both of our preachers were out in the firing lines, holding meetings, winning men to Christ, and raising up new churches. Then every few months, they would come around and visit the churches that they had already been established. This seemed to be, according to our view of it, the plan of the apostolic church. This was back in 1958. And so this has been our history. Understand something. In the Bible, when you look at the word for pastor, the word for pastor and elder is the same. It stems from this word presbuteros. The difference is between a pastor and an elder is that God and the people have placed someone sort of in charge to lead them. But it's like if I get all of the men, please stand up. And then I say, I I don't know, Patrick, why don't you lead them out to the parking lot? I ask him to lead them, but is he any greater or lesser than any of the other men on the line? Just because he has a responsibility to lead doesn't mean that he is greater or better. And so what happens is that when you look at our churches... The job of a pastor is more of a coach or a trainer than the one that's supposed to carry all of the work. The way that we view the work of the pastor, I picture a football field where all of the church is sitting in the bleachers and the pastor runs out, try to break to the flags and, and you guys are chanting, pastor, pastor, he's our man. If he can do it, no one can. And it's not how it works. It is the other way around. I'm in the bleachers. You are in the field. I'm saying, go get him, tiger. You know, that's the way to go. That's how it was meant to be. And so, although there is a functional difference, I'm just part of the flock. The Lord is my shepherd. And I have just been entrusted to train and equip. This is how it was meant to be. So I'm giving you a little bit of more history. And, you know, I hate when people read PowerPoints to me, but I tell you, this is overkill. Because I preached a sermon like this a little bit lighter in another church. And I was mentioning how it is that we depend on pastors. How when we have fellowship meal, we're not going to pray unless the pastor is the one that prays. Because apparently we have a special connection with the big guy. And the food is not blessed unless he pray. As soon as I preach the sermon, fellowship meal, pastor, we're waiting for you to pray. And I'm like, I just said, you don't need that. You could also pray and intercede. The times of the priest interceding for the people is over. When Christ died on the cross and then later he took that role of the high priest on our behalf, we have a direct line in connection with him. And so, yes, I love to pray for you. I enjoy praying for you. But what if I don't? You could pray for yourselves. And this is very crucial. Which, by the way, just a little, you know, side announcement. I'm looking for people to pray out there. There's a list. Make sure you sign up your names. I'm trying to fill it up so at the end of church, get that all going. Because I need your prayers to intercede on behalf of the people that we're trying to minister to in this coming week. But let's get back over here before I get on that. We are at the present time under great scrutiny. For instance, there's a sensational book that has been written by a French priest who has examined us very closely. And I must say, rather fairly. His aim is not to criticize or to attack us, but to find out actually how is it possible for a French Catholic ever to become a Seventh-day Adventist. In that book, he analyzes the sects among whom he lists the Baptists, the Methodists, and the Christian scientists. But Seventh-day Adventists are at the top of the list. It, It is significant that in analyzing the psychology of the sectarian, as he puts it, he says that when Adventists were a movement that is... 
when they had no temples and no institutions, we Catholics fear them. But they have settled down and are organized and talk a great deal about organization and money. In fact, the author says that Adventists resemble the Catholic most of all Protestants because they talk of money more than anyone else. It is a fact that when a movement ceases to move and settles down, not only in its organization but also in its thinking, it is a high time to watch. The gospel is to go to every nation, tongue, and people, and ministers are not to devote their labor so entirely to the churches which know the truth. Both minister and people lose much by following this method of labor. It is by engaging in earnest work, by hard, painful experience, that we are enabled to reach the men and women of our cities, to call them in from the highways and the byways of life. But many of our people are subfitted with the privileges they have enjoyed. And have lost the sense of the value of the human soul. You know, I have to tell you, this church and Crawford have been quite refreshing for me. I used to average about 200 phone calls, text messages, and emails a day. I'm averaging about 20 to 30 with you guys here. This is great. You know, down to 10%, this is phenomenal. I'm glad that it is not because if I'm busy just answering calls, dealing, then I can't be out there ministering to people who don't have the chance to know the truth yet. And this is the part where I can put my efforts into a bit more than just plain babysitter. And not to say that you don't have important needs. Understand this. You know, some of you guys, I have learned, and through other churches, not just here, but I have learned you have some illnesses, some serious stuff, some detrimental things. Well, pastor, we didn't want to bother you. And not one phone call. I have to find out through one person who told another person who told another person who told another person. Again, that doesn't happen in this church. Uh, to tell another person that so-and-so is sick or has surgery yesterday. This happened. I would love to pray for you in the day of surgery. If you're nearby and I'm available, I would love to meet you there and have prayer before you go in. That's important. And yet... When somebody may play the piano and does a song that we didn't like, I get all kinds of phone calls and text messages and emails. It's like we have a misunderstanding of what my function is. I am not complaint central, but I am, you know, let's pray, let's talk about the advancement of the work central. And yet you overwhelm me to complain about the color of the carpet or why are we having so much of this at potluck or this and that. It doesn't matter. But the stuff that's important, oh, we didn't want to bother you with it. Really? That kind of bother I love is not bother at all. Anyhow, let's keep moving, yeah? There should not be a call to have settled pastors over our churches, but let the life-giving power of the truth impress the individual members to act. That's right, not bench warmers. Leading them to labor interestedly to carry on efficient missionary work in each locality. Do not depend on the ministers to do all of the work of your church and neighborhood. The pastor must seek the lost sheep and you must help them. And while ministers are called to labor in the other parts of the vineyard, the people of God must have light in themselves, speaking to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts and making melody unto the Lord. While you should respect the minister highly for their work's sake, you must not trust them as your saviors. But build yourselves up in the most holy faith. When you assemble in the house of God, tell your experiences and you will grow stronger. While you speak in meeting, you are gaining an education that will enable you to labor for others. 
You don't know how many calls I get, Pastor. Is this is this safe to do on Sabbath or is this not? Is it okay if I what if I mislead you? The Bible says that even demons will pose as pastors. You must have a relationship with God on your own. God calls for pastors and teachers and evangelists from door to door. His servants are to proclaim the gospel message. The knowledge of present truth is not to lead those who have received it to settle down and colonize. It is to lead them into new places. 1910. It has has often been presented to me that there should be less sermonizing by ministers acting merely as local pastors of churches and the greater personal effort should be put forward. Our people should not be made to think that they need to listen to a sermon every Sabbath. Come on now. Many who listen frequently to sermons, even though the truth be preached in clear lines, learn but little. Often it will be more profitable if Sabbath meetings were of the same nature as a Bible class study. I wonder if there was this thing that our churches had happening maybe in the morning sometime where we could come together and study the Word of God. We should come up with something, shouldn't we? We we have it? Ah, and it's the one thing that no one shows up for. Tasha, listen, I appreciate your compassion. You saw a need. You saw the kids. We need to start this. You say we were starting in April in the announcements. You know, it's a good start. And you said that way the parents could start practicing, getting here early and all of that stuff. But, you know, that's important. Parents, if earliness is an issue, we'll just cancel, you know, the sermon and we'll have Sabbath school at 11 o'clock then. If that's the case, you know, I mean, it's, I I don't know. The idea is that the Bible study, when you touch it, when you hear when you read, when you talk, you learn much more than just sitting here being lectured because every other word I say takes you to a daydream and then you come back a little bit later. I get it. I got the attention span of a goldfish. I understand. I really, really do. But yet the one thing that is more important for all of us, no one shows up. You know, I had somebody tell me this morning, Pastor, I'm so glad you're here. When you show up, the church becomes alive. And I looked at the church, and it was like five people. This is alive? I don't know what happens to Sabbath that I'm not here, but I'm, I'm hurting. My heart aches. Because if that's the case, that really stinks. We are cheating ourselves of the most important thing. And parents, I have to tell you, do the best thing that you can to get here on time, get early. I recognize if you had court or like us, you know, we have to bring the schools in, the kids to school here by 8 o'clock in the morning. But yes, sometimes we struggle to get them here for Sabbath school by 8, by 9.30. But we don't miss school. But Sabbath school, yeah, yeah, we kind of are laid back. And I do know things happen. When my son was born, I discover this thing that we could just call it an explosion is the best thing we could describe it. From time to time, we're out the door, all dressed, and explosion happens, and we have to go back and throw the whole baby in the tub, clothes and all, to bathe and clean, and suddenly you're late to church. I get it. Emergency happens when you have children. But some of you, your kids are long gone. There is no excuse. Absolutely. I mean, some of you are way older. Maybe the explosions happen to you, but in ge- I'm sorry. But, but in general... There is no excuse. There is no reason why not. I guarantee you, you had a ticket, you had to go to court, you got a job interview, you will be there. But yet when it comes to an appointment with the Lord that he set aside the one day and said six days do whatever you want, and you're saying, yes, but on the Sabbath day, I'm going to just rest from the stuff that I wanted to do that day while neglecting you and disappointment, that becomes an issue. Come on, church, if you can't say amen, say ouch. 
This story right here, and I don't know how familiar you are with this or not, but let me give you a little bit of background before I read the scripture. Matthew 24 describes how the world is going to look towards the end times. The disciple says, hey, how are we going to know, Jesus, that you're coming? Well, let me tell you. And he broke it down for them and gave him all of these details. And he continued in Matthew 25 with how the church looked in the end times. So, you know, famine, pestilence, and all that stuff that's happening out in the world. In the church... This is how the church looks like. Matthew 25 has three parables. The very first parable is the parable of the virgins. We talked about that parable before. We've heard it before. Maybe you've read it. And if you have not, go home and read it. Read both Matthew 24 and 25. The idea of the parable of the virgins is that everybody is filled with the Holy Spirit. If you, if you cling and spend time with God, the Holy Spirit will grow inside of you. Being spirit-filled is crucial. Notice that every, all of the virgins fell asleep. But even though they were all asleep, some of them were prepared ahead of time. Notice that they were prepared before the time came. Some of us are delaying the inevitable. When I was younger, I used to think church was so boring. Now that I'm older, sometimes I think the same thing too, but that's neither here nor there. But I used to think that, and I used to say, you know what? When I get old and gray and bald and all of this thing, which is starting to happen now, you know, all of these things, then I'll go to church. Then I'll dedicate my life to God. But the idea is that you get ready continually. You have to live every moment spiritually as though it were your last. You get filled now. There's no time like the presence to spend time with God and in growth with the Holy Spirit. So that when you do fall asleep and the bridegroom does show up, you're going to say, wait, I got to go back and get some stuff. And you miss the opportunity. You can't wait for the bridegroom to come to them and say, let me get ready. That happens right here and right now. Parable number two is about the talents. And the parable of the talents, you know, here, we'll go ahead and read it. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like, or the church is like, or the Tallahassee first seven day Adventist church is like, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his good to them. And the one he gave five, and to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. You may be familiar with the story that the one that got two and the one that got five, they invested it, they, they, they multiplied it, they, they duplicated what they had received, but the one that only had one talent, he buried it. And this is the response that we see here for the ones that did well. In, Ma in Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23, it's repeated. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. See, I gave you two talents, I gave you five, you duplicated it. You were faithful over few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter, enter the joy of your Lord. But yet the one who just buried his talent, or may I say the one who just warmed up a bench and did absolutely nothing to gain a brother or sister in Christ, he said on verse 26, but his Lord answered to him and said, you wicked and lazy servant. So understand, Matthew 25 describes the church. Parable of the virgins, the church is spirit-filled. Parable of the talents, every person, if you are a good, faithful servant, you will use what the Lord has blessed you with to reach to people. You all have a story. You don't need to be a theologian. You don't need to do the whole Greek and Hebrew thing. All you need to do is tell people how Christ got you out of darkness. And don't pretend like you haven't been in darkness. If you are here today, that means that God has already pulled you out. Now, you may still be in some darkness, and that's all right. God is not finished with any of us. 
But we are called to be wounded healers. We cannot wait to be perfect to share with people the message. The lady at the well, she went to the town after talking to Jesus. Her, her, her husband, who was not hers, was still at the house. And she didn't even get him out yet. She went already to the town what Christ had done in her life. See, Christ has come as you are. And we have our pretenses as to whether or not it is acceptable in the house of God. But it's his house. Christ says, tell people what I've done in your life. And we say, well, you have to meet this criteria first before you could do that. You need a minister to lead you and train you. But you don't need a minister for you to share your own story with people out there. This is a description of the church. And then... If you want to know what kind of service we need to do, the last parable in Matthew 25 gives us an idea of what the church does, which is where we meet the needs of the community. You may have heard it. If not, check it out. We're not reading it today. But for I was hungry and I was thirsty and I was sick and all of that, and you took care of me, you fed me, you visited me. Remember that? Meeting the needs of the people. There's no one out there that would deny seeing you look after the needs of the people. Christ's methodology alone, we did a whole Bible study on that. He mingled with men as one who desired their own good. He ministered to their needs. He won their confidence. And then he said, follow me. Many of us tell people, here's the truth, follow the truth, change completely, and come to where we are. Totally different methodologies. My heart has been filled with sadness as I have looked over the field and seen the barren places. They're empty, what he's saying. What does this mean? Who are standing as representatives of Jesus Christ? Who feel the burden for the souls? Who cannot receive the truth until it is brought to them? Our ministers are hovering over the churches as though the angel of mercy was not making efforts to save souls. God holds this minister responsible for the souls of those who are in darkness. He does not call you to go into fields that need no physician. Establish your churches with the understanding that they need not to expect the minister to wait upon them and to be continually feeding them. They have the truth. They know what the truth is. They should have root in themselves. This should strike down deeply that they may reach up higher and higher still. They must be rooted and grounded in faith. 1901. The churches are dying and they want a minister to preach to them. They should be taught to bring a faithful tie to God that he may strengthen and bless them. They should be brought into working order that the breath of God may come into them. They should be taught that unless they can stand alone without a minister, they need to be converted anew and baptized anew. They need to be born again. So in conclusion, what I've learned from today, and I pray that it is the same, the pastor is to be a trainer or equipper when he or she deals with the local churches. The, clergy mains work, the clergy's main work is apostolic or evangelistic. It is not God's plan for Seventh-day Adventists to have settled pastors over the churches. Churches are to be ministered by local lay elders and taught to care for themselves. This plan will result in maturity. Failure to follow this plan will result in spiritual weakness. Pastors who become the primary caregivers instead of teaching members how to minister and put in the church work to work should be fired. And lastly, which servant are you? A good and faithful servant? Or? And I ask this question because we are here. We're going to hit the ground running and we are going to be working. You can first start by praying. 
And then you could join us as we do the evangelistic series. And even that is just part of it. There's a whole lot more work to be done. There's a whole lot more work to be done. Every place that you're located in, where you work, where you study, where you live, it is a mission field. And if you aren't doing anything in your unique mission fields, now is the time. So it is my prayer that you recognize that you are all ministers. Let us go ahead and pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and we love you so much. And Father God, I've read a lot. I share a lot of histories. I share lots of quotes, a couple of Bible verses. I, I beat up a couple of my brothers and sisters here just a little bit. But Father God, it is time that we go back to being a movement and not just a settled, organized institution that hovers over a particular area and does nothing else. We are sitting here enjoying ourselves, and it is okay to come together once a week, but the rest of the week, although there's other work to be done, we should not let it keep, let it keep us from ministering to others. If we genuinely and wholeheartedly believe that you are coming soon, why is it that we can just continue about our business neglecting those who have not heard about you, neglecting those who have not a chance to meet you, neglecting those who have no idea that you die for them and that you love them and that you're coming back someday hoping to take them home because we were all predestined to be your children. You are willing to adopt us and give us your name that we can all be called children of God. But yet, if no one delivers the message to them, how would they ever know? Are we so self-involved? That because we have met you, that's sufficient? Father God, it is time for us to practice what we've been preaching. It is time for us to realize that you are around the corner. You know my own personal wrestling with this whole evangelistic series and, and how much more of the signs are being fulfilled right before us. Now more than ever, your coming is really at our doors. And it may be a year or it may be a decade. But man, Father God, it is evident that the time is at hand. So, Lord, I implore you that you pour your blessings over me, over my family here, and over the community that you've entrusted us with. Even if it's all over there in Havana, like some of our folks from our church are from. Wherever we are, where we live, where we work, where we study, it is a mission field that you've entrusted us with. And if not us, then who? So, Father God, please come into our lives and pour out your spirit, and give us the strength and the courage to share with others the gospel message that we have received. Bless us and keep us now. It is my prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.